It's the Ambiguously Blind Podcast with your host, a guy that's great at hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, hey, hey. Greetings and welcome back. Thanks for tuning in and subscribing. I want to encourage you to visit the website for the podcast, which is ambiguouslyblind.com. Or if you're like me and don't want to type out the word ambiguously all the time, you can go to amblind.com. That's A-M-B-L-I-N-D.com. There you will find articles, posts about the podcast, as well as links on all the places that you can subscribe and links to the products that we discuss during our conversations, as well as a link to the merch store so you can get your very own tremendous tea. There's also transcriptions of all of our podcast episodes, like this one, where I'm going to visit with Dr. Todd Wallin, who is a pediatrician in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. Dr. Wallin has worked closely with the National Meningitis Association to help spread awareness and education about meningitis, as well as preventative measures like the vaccines that are widely available today. So we'll talk about those and many other things meningitis. Let's welcome Dr. Todd Wallin to the podcast. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about uh, meningitis, which sounds kind of odd, but it's something that has uh, deeply affected my life, and I think it affects a lot of people as well. And I think there's some really good information to get out into the public space about meningitis. But before we get in too deep, tell me what you can about yourself and, and your practice and what you do. Sure. I am a general pediatrician. I'm a lactation consultant, and I'm also the CEO of a, an independent pediatric practice in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, the, the name of that practice is Kids Plus Pediatrics. And uh, we're in Pittsburgh. We have three offices, about 100 employees. So we're kind of a large, I guess, small size practice is how they categorize us. Okay, so let's talk about meningitis. Kind of generally speaking, what is meningitis? Meningitis is an inflammation of the meninges. So that's the lining that covers over the brain and the spinal cord. The question gets to what can cause meningitis, and there's a few different causes, right? So there's bacterial causes, there are viral causes, and rarely there's even fungal causes. But most commonly, when people refer to meningitis, they're typically talking about bacterial or viral meningitis. Um, And those two are pretty different. And different in what way? So I, as I've mentioned before, I'm a survivor of bacterial meningitis, mm-hmm. but I know some people that have had viral and it seems to be less severe. Correct. Yeah. Um, in general, and, and both are pretty uncommon, right? So these are relatively rare compared to other viral bacterial illnesses, but that's correct. I would say viral meningitis you um, will have symptoms that uh, represent the inflammation, again, of the meninges, the lining of the brain and the, and the spinal cord. So you can have symptoms that can be somewhat similar, headache, fever, neck stiffness, uh, light sensitivity, visual issues, sometimes um, cognitive issues. But in viral meningitis, the symptoms typically aren't as severe, are self-limited, and typically can go away um, they may require some medical support, but oftentimes may not require medical support. Um, conversely, bacterial meningitis can cause real serious disease. So it 
It also is inflaming the lining, again, the meninges over the brain and spinal cord. But these symptoms can become quite severe. And the thing that the, that's really the, the scariest piece of bacterial meningitis is that the symptoms can go from mild, almost like cold-like or vi- you know, mild viral symptoms like to coma or death with within a day's time now it could take longer but it can go that rapidly and that's why it's quite terrifying when we hear about outbreaks in our community because when they hit you'll oftentimes see the picture of a a relatively healthy uh, child or young adult who gets this disease and you know you hear terrifying stories of these people ending up in icus or even even dead um, in rapid fashion I guess um, what you're saying is the bacterial would be more aggressive and more uh, fatal. So it sounds like it can happen very quick uh, or maybe not. Correct. Yeah. It doesn't always have to have that rapid 24 hour course. And I'll tell you that you hear cases and I, I'll distinctly remember one of a girl and I, I think she, I think she did not survive, but she had gone to the emergency room three times three times within like a day and a half or two. And again, because these symptoms are kind of nondescript, at first maybe some achiness, some fever, some headache, um, that, you know, at onset, it might look like a viral illness and you go to an emergency room and you're not looking at that initially. And while the patient might feel pretty lousy, the the healthcare providers, as they do the workup, um, if they're not suspecting meningitis, they could easily write it off as, oh, this looks kind of viral. I don't know exactly what it is. Just here, have some fluids. They might give them IV fluids or tell them to drink and send them home. And I distinctly remember this girl, and I don't remember if she went to the same ER three times. I know she went to at least the same one twice. Um, second time went back, again, was told oh, it looks viral. I think maybe was, I don't remember what the particular treatment was, but by the ter- third time she showed up, and then went into an ICU. I don't believe she survived. And, and that just goes to show that this is a really hard disease to, to, nesse, to accurately diagnose early. And even when, early, uh, even when accurately diagnosed and antibiotics are administered for Neisseria meningitis, the bacteria, even when you do that, you still have um, kids that die or have, go on to have significant uh, long-term complications. So it's, it's a uh, you know it's pretty terrifying in that respect. Even if you make the right diagnosis, you can have I think it's about ten to fifteen percent of people will go on uh, to have death at ten to fifteen percent, even if accurately diagnosed. And another twenty percent, like one in five, can have long term complications. And these can include depending on how the bacteria is kind of invading the body. If it's just in the um, the meninges, you can have t- damage to nervous tissue, right? So cognitive issues. You can have vision issues. You can go on to have a deafness. Uh, you can, depending on if it starts to go into the bloodstream, you can have things like amputations, organ loss. Um, so you you start to look at what's called uh, meningococcal meningitis, which is inflammation of the lining of the nervous tissue 
versus meningococcemia, where it gets into the blood, and that has a particularly high fatality rate. So when we look at the two different types of ways that it can attack along the lining of the nervous system versus uh, the bloodstream, the death rate goes up to as high as, I think, 40% if it gets into the bloodstream. And um, if you've ever seen pictures of, of uh, patients who have suffered that type of infection, what you'll see is what are called purpura. Um, those are ruptured, essentially, uh, blood vessels with leaking blood, and people will have these kind of reddish, purplish spots under the skin. And that's a particularly scary sign when we see a purpuric rash that um, that's a real emergency. And if we ever see kids with that rash, they immediately are into the um, emergency room and intensive care unit, typically, for if it's related to Neisseria meningitis. So as far as what meningitis looks like, I think you just kind of walked through most of it there. Purple spottiness, I've heard that. Are there any other telltale signs that would that would indicate meningitis versus some? Yeah, neck. If we think of like classic meningitis signs, right? Just the influence. So the purpuric um, lesions are when the blood bloodstream, when the bacteria is getting into the bloodstream. When we think straight meningitis, we'll oftentimes hear kind of the classic things you're taught in medical school is, you know, people complaining of a headache. Sometimes like the, you know, just a horrific headache neck stiffness, light sensitivity. If we see those, you know, our, our kind of the red flag should be going up for, hey, am I possibly dealing with some form of bacterial meningitis here? And, and Neisseria meningitis isn't the only bacteria, but it's, um, it's certainly the main one we think of for these symptoms. And again, that requires getting those kids or young adults or infants or older adults. I mean, it can affect any age group, but in this disease, it does affect kids and young adults, particularly um, meningococcal B. And we can talk about the different serotypes, which are different kind of types of Neisseria meningitis. But yeah, when you see symptoms of horrible headache, neck stiffness, light sensitivity, fever, boy, oh boy, that, that is uh, something that should get any uh, healthcare provider pretty nervous in getting that patient in for immediate care. The bloodstream, again, it could have achiness, fever, but by the time you're seeing um, the purpuric rash, these patients are going to look horribly sick. Um, they could already have impact of organs. Again, they potentially could also have neurologic issues. Um, but when their organs are getting affected and that purpuric rash is being impacted, uh, really you're starting to see systemic or full system effects of that bacterial infection. Why do you think that it is that it affects uh, adolescents and youth so much more so than other, uh, generally the population. Some of these um, diseases have relation to either conditions. So like infancy, um, we know kids are more susceptible to certain bacteria. So meningococcal B is known to uh, impact infants and, and can cause disease. Um, but adolescents and young adults for meningococcal B also are susceptible, um, as are the other types of meningitis, which we'll talk about. Um, and that's more likely related to types of behavior and living quarters. So we know that certain types of meningitis really seem to, for whatever reason, um, cause infection in these populations that live in close quarters. So dormitories at like colleges, uh, barracks and say military uh, installations where 
lots of people living in close contact. And the other thing, when we think of dormitories and college life, are certain types of social behaviors. Sharing drinks and intimate contact is also felt to spread this uh, disease. So in college, we know those are all pretty high-risk types of behaviors. So uh, those are the two things we often think about for uh, higher risk for kids with meningitis. So um, in the military, uh, you know, the recruits are now, I believe, uniformly immunized against both meningitis B as well as uh, types A, C, Y, and W. And I, again, I'll, uh, maybe following this, we can talk about the different types. Um, and now in, in general population, I would say for high school, at least in our area in Pennsylvania, it's mandated to get what's called the quadrivalent meningitis vaccine, and that protects against types A, C, W, and Y. And then the B, which does not fit in the same vaccine, you have to get a separate meningitis B vaccine, that is given at an older age and required by some colleges, but not all. So uh, if it's okay with you, if you'd like, I can talk a bit about the different types of meningitis. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. Okay. Yeah. So there, I think there are 12 different types of Neisseria meningitides, um, and they're broken down by what are called serogroups. So they're identified um, by different proteins expressed on the outside of the bacteria. And it's pretty interesting. If you look at epi epidemiologic studies, they can tell you what types are more predominant um, during different times. So different decades, you'll see that sometimes type A is more prominent or type C is or type uh, W. Um, and so uh, it's also geographically different. So what might be very um, common types in the Eastern hemisphere might be very different in the Western hemisphere. Now you heard me reference type B and I kept mentioning it separately from several of the other types. So the most common types we see in the US and the Western hemisphere are uh, definitely <clears throat> types uh, A, C, um, W and Y. And that's why they came up with a vaccine to address those four types. So there is what's called a quadrivalent vaccine, quadrivalent standing for four serogroups, and that's types A, C, <clears throat> W, and Y, with the first dose given at age 11 to 12 years of age, and then a second dose, a boosting dose, given at around age 16 years old. So it's a two-dose series, again, first dose at 11 to 12, with the second and final dose giving at age 16. Now you heard me say the quadrivalent had A, C, W, and Y. You didn't hear me say B. And while they've tried and tried and they're continuing to try to get a vaccine that takes care of A, B, C, W, and Y, so far they haven't been able to get the B in there without interfering with the other types. So currently the meningitis B vaccine um, is given at age 16 with a follow-up dose, usually they recommend in about a year. So we give that dose at 16 and 17. And again, that's the one that we see pretty commonly in those groups, like I said, that um, college age or um, living close quarter, living in barracks or dormitories. So I don't want to get into COVID-19 specifically, but just in general, how does the infectious rate of COVID and the, how, how COVID is spread, how does that 
link or come uh, become common with meningitis? Is it through the droplets and? Yeah, um, there's still a lot to be found out about COVID, right? So it's a virus. So we're comparing that um, as we compare it to these uh, types of bacterial meningitis, different in that COVID's a virus and that Nigeria, uh, Neisseria meningitides is a, is a bacteria. The, um, while they both infect secretions, the droplets that are spread, um, spreading COVID, we believe, are small to very small um, droplets. So they can travel three to six feet. And there's even some modeling that shows it could even travel further in smaller droplets. In bacterial meningitis, um, we don't think of it really being uh, suspended in air very long. Uh, when we think of fatality, um, the uh, COVID, depending on the data you're looking at, can have a fatality rate of one, two, three percent, I think, in the higher range. Um, but we've already talked about uh, the Neisseria meningitides can have pretty significant fatality. If you are looking at uh, the meningitis, we said maybe 10 to 15 percent. And if it gets into the bloodstream, up to 40 percent. So the thing that's terrifying about uh, the bacterial disease, Neisseria meningitides, is it's absolute rapid um, symptoms progressing to uh, severe or death within you know, 24 to 48 hours. Whereas COVID, which is scary and certainly has killed lots and lots of people, isn't nearly as fatal, but it's pretty darn infectious. And it, as we see, <clears throat> and I do like to point this out, what we're seeing with COVID right now is a world without any uh, herd immunity. So it's a, it's a new virus. There's no real protection in the in the population from it. So if you're exposed, we see how rapidly it's it's tearing through the the U.S. and the globe. The interesting thing with Neisseria meningitides, the bacteria, is that people can carry this in their nasopharynx, in the back of their throat, essentially, without it causing any disease. And we don't know why some people it goes on to progress to disease. And in other people, it doesn't. They just seem to carry the bacteria. Um, so that's another kind of fascinating uh, quandary that we have with Neisseria meningitis. Yeah, and that's the same thing for me too, especially with the infectious rate of meningitis. It seems to be pretty infectious. Um, but where I was in a college setting when I, when I got meningococcal meningitis, I was the lucky one. So nobody else had any symptoms or uh, no, nobody else was hospitalized or anything with, with any kind of symptoms. So is it normal for that type of scenario as well? Correct. Right. So a lot of times you'll see one person get it while maybe living in a dorm or in a fraternity or even at home and nobody else getting any symptoms. Now there've been cases certainly where if you swab everybody, they come in contact with, you can see people that may be carrying the bacteria, but again, having no symptoms. And so we still don't have a clear understanding as why that may be related to certain types of uh, genetic predisposition or behavior, but we don't have absolute answers on that. If you're in close contact with somebody that has meningitis, meaning sharing a household or an apartment or a dormitory, we will treat those people um, just because we know there's risk and um, we can't predict if they might go on to get the disease. So there is treatment that goes um, to to close, close contacts of people that go on to get the disease. 
In your practice or in your medical experience, have you had any firsthand encounters with meningitis? Yeah, I mean, it's the thing is, it's rare. So in my 25 years of practice, we've had a couple patients that have had it. Um, I saw more when I was a resident, because don't forget when you're a resident and you're working at the hospitals, you are that referral center for a large region, as opposed to a practice where you could potentially go your whole career with maybe only seeing a couple cases or perhaps a few. Um, when you're working at the hospital in the emergency room or in the intensive care unit, you definitely are going to be seeing those patients referred in from the entire region's worth of practices. So there, sadly, I did see kids with meningitis. Now, thankfully, the majority that I remember over those, uh, you know, three years of residency and four years of medical school, um, the majority survived, but some did not. And some went on to have really um, terrible complications. Again, there's amputations, there's um, organ failure. And then um, having the, you know, the wonderful opportunity of working with the National Meningitis Association, I've had the chance to meet other survivors like yourself. So Blake uh, Shukert and um, Francesca Testa um, both survived, but both had complications, um, whether it was um, cognitive and, and muscular kind of uh, need to recuperate um, or amputations or organ failure. So, um, you know, I've, I've certainly met people as well that have survived. And I actually did 14 years of clinical vaccine research. And I remember when we were involved in the early studies looking for a, a meningitis vaccine, I met a gentleman who had uh, four limbs amputated uh, because of his uh, experience with bacteria meningitis. So it's, um, it can be a pretty, pretty devastating disease. Without a question, it can. So I guess it's the combination of the rareness of the disease and kind of the ambiguous nature of the symptoms that makes it really hard to detect in a, in a timely manner. That's right. Yeah. You don't see, you don't see it frequently, so it's not necessarily on the top of your mind and the symptoms can start off as pretty run of the mill viral symptoms of achiness, a little fever, just not feeling right, some headache. I mean, that could be anything, right? That could be flu. That could be just a, a non-flu viral illness. Um, and as I said, that one girl that went into the ER three times, you know, within, I think it was like 24 hours or so, uh, two times they sent her back out saying it looks viral and I think second time gave her some fluids. But, uh, you know, if you're not thinking of it, if you're not doing the testing, which can include um, uh, blood work to see how the immune system, particularly the uh, white blood cells are reacting to the infection, that can give us an idea if it's bacterial or not. And if you're thinking um, meningitis, um, besides getting blood samples for looking for cultures of blood counts, we usually do what's called a lumbar puncture. And while this sounds pretty terrible, when needles inserted um, into the cerebral spinal fluid, you get a sample of that, and that's uh, lower in the spinal column. Um, it, is, it is a test that can tell us if there's uh, bacteria invading into the cerebral spinal fluid. So those, those tests really help guide the decision for types of treatment. In my experience, when I uh, was taken by ambulance to the hospital, of course, I'm unconscious, so I don't have any memory of that. But the doctors that were at the ER when I arrived 
were trying to identify the what the issue was, and based on the way I was presenting to them, they originally thought that I had a drug overdose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. How, in, how long were you sick for before you were unconscious? Basically, um, I was feeling bad starting on a, a Thursday evening, mm-hmm. and I was in the hospital by noon on Saturday. So I uh, mm-hmm. went to bed Thursday evening feeling kind of like I had the flu, mm-hmm. which is another thing I want to ask you about too, as it as it relates to the flu. Mm-hmm. And woke up Friday morning with the worst you know, looking back at it, the absolute worst flu symptoms anybody could ever have, Mm -hmm. um, with getting sick. And I had like a vertigo feeling where I was, everything was spinning. I couldn't, I could stand, but I I couldn't stand for more than a few seconds because I I fell, um, like this, the the world was spinning to me and -hmm. I was violently getting ill. And after maybe an hour or two that stopped and I went back to sleep in my bed and by the grace of God and lots of other miracles that happened in between, um, a friend of mine found me unconscious, called 911, and they took me to the, to the hospital by ambulance. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point where the, they thought that I had overdosed on, uh, or uh, overdosed they thought that I had drugs. overdosed on, on drugs or something. So, Right. I mean, because unless you had fever, the very first thing that goes through a lot of people's heads are teenager uh, you know, unconscious, let's start thinking of things, um, that can cause loss of consciousness. So, um, there's, there's basically algorithms we go through, but they include, you know, overdose, which certainly is not uncommon. And if you look at the reasons for uh, loss of consciousness in that age group, drugs certainly is high. So you have to consider it, but you always have to consider infection. And it sounds like they must've realized at some point that infection was um, a possibility. And it sounds like they ended up treating you for that too, as well. I think the way that they finally determined it was through the lumbar puncture mm-hmm. or what I would call a, what I call a spinal tap. That's right. Yep. And there's, once you get a positive lumbar puncture, you know, you can have a negative one if you perhaps maybe don't get the needle in the right space and get enough fluid, but if it's positive, it's positive. So if you're getting, um, white blood cells that are increased in the spinal fluid. And if you see any bacteria, when you do the analysis, that's pretty definitive. And then again, combined with your symptoms and the history, whatever history they could get, then you, you got to jump into action and start supportive measures and get antibiotics on board as quickly as possible. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think is so important and critical too, is that I don't, I didn't have any history. Right. Now, I don't know if the ER knew that, you know, initially, but I wasn't on any kind of drug and I had no medical history as far as, as far as anyone was concerned, I was 19 at the time. And of course I was also 10 feet tall and bulletproof. So, right. I mean, I had no history of any kind of disease or illness or any kind of, I was a, I was your average 19 year old. And so from my timeline there, the Thursday evening to Saturday sometime around probably 10 a.m. to noon, you know, we're talking 24 to 48 hours, like you said earlier, mm-hmm. and it went from from zero to, uh, to something pretty quickly. And were you living in an apartment or a dormitory? I was or? in an apartment at the time. I had two roommates. Yeah. Uh, I'd been in a dorm the, the, pre- the previous year, but no. Mm-hmm. But I was... Yeah you know, very social and in sure. lots of things and in intramural sports. Sure. And I, which is some of the things that are kind of baffling to me is that I, I didn't, that 
you know, I sit in classes with anywhere between 10 and 200 kids um, throughout the week and doing intramural sports where particularly basketball was going on when I was, I was playing and coaching a basketball team mm-hmm. and coming into contact with, with people physically and all those kind of things. And again, I was, I was the lucky one. I was the chosen one. So look at me. Well, and again, you, so by medical history standpoint, well, nobody might've known exactly what went on for those 24, 12, 24, 36 hours preceding what ends up being you being sent to the hospital, your age and your setting of 19 year old attending college right there already puts meningitis much more high on my list, but it also puts up, you know, alcohol um, and drug overdose, right. Um, And trauma. But if you didn't have a obvious hit to the head where we saw blood or a wound to the head, you start kind of going through this decision-making process, which says, okay, if it doesn't look like trauma, could this be seizures? Could this be, you know, um, lots of other things, but then you start looking at tests in addition to your history and your physical exam. So you rapidly start trying to acquire all this information. So you get as much history as you can. Simultaneously, you start applying your knowledge base as to what we call index of suspicion. What are the kind of things that we know that can cause these symptoms? Well, not narrowing it down too quickly because you don't want to miss something, right? So what if we say, oh my God, this could be meningitis, but in fact, you overdosed on drugs, right? Particularly a narcotic. Well, if I wait too long to administer the medication that can reverse those symptoms, um, your life could be at risk as well. So we, we obviously look at your vital signs and we look at symptoms that would go along with overdose versus infection versus seizure versus, you know, maybe uh, uh, it could be something bizarre. Maybe you had a rare bleed or a stroke, right? All of those things can cause loss of consciousness. So we very quickly have to, you know, check your neurologic exam, check your vital signs, check your pulses, because all of those things can start revealing and taking me down one path versus another, a bleed, a tumor, drugs, infection. And as we start doing the workup, sometimes we're working up a few of them at once by doing some of these initial screens just with history and vital signs and physical exam. And then slowly you start peeling off, nope, this does not look like a bleed or it doesn't look like um, tumor from you know what we know, or, or maybe we don't know, but we say, well, let's get to the things that could most quickly and uh, most having their most devastating impact if we don't do something. So drugs then goes higher on the list and infection. Um, and again, bleed would be pretty rare for that age. So, you know, all this stuff is happening like on the fly in the emergency room. That's what those doctors are trained to do is take all that information, the information they're gathering in rapid fashion as well, uh, as soon as you walk in there and start going down the decision tree and deciding what needs to be done. And as you said, blood count would have added to your vital signs. And then if they did a lumbar puncture, they would have gone, there we go. And I don't know your specific case, but it sounds like if you think it happened after the lumbar puncture, that's usually pretty definitive if, if the positive signs are in the blood, in the um, cerebral spinal fluid. And just to make things even more fun, it seems to me like it seems to rear its head during uh, flu season or the winter or early spring months. Is that, yeah, is that just me? Or? Can, well, there can be some seasonality to it, that's for sure. And don't forget, um, closer quarters often is associated, particularly with school years, right, in the fall. In spring, that could happen in the winter too. 
We won't see it as much in the summer, but school's typically out in the summer as well. And we're not in as close of quarters all the time because we're outside. Um, but yeah, there can be some seasonality to it. And all the more reason why I tell people um, it's important to get things like uh, vaccines that you can be protected against. So uh, first and foremost, as we're talking about meningitis, there are the two uh, meningitis vaccines. So there's the quadrivalent meningitis vaccine at 11 to 12. Um, and again, with a second dose of 16. And if you get that, you're pretty well protected all the way through your college years or at least uh, late teen and even early 20s. And then the meningitis B vaccine, which will be offered at 16. And again, at a second dose of 17 to 18. And if you get those two, that has pretty amazingly successful protection against uh, the five types then that are in those two vaccines. If you go on to get a flu vaccine, that's additional protection against a disease that we're going to have to figure out is flu causing this. Because as you just pointed out, if it happens during flu season, now I have to also figure out, well, wait a second, if I'm thinking of infection, could flu cause this? That would be really typical to put you into a coma, but sometimes flu can be horrific and it can kill people. So we know that flu can be devastating. And then, um, you know, there are other infections that can be pretty overwhelming. So um, not all of them have vaccines, but the ones we can be vaccinated against makes a lot of sense. And while we're on the topic of vaccines, Mm -hmm. if you don't mind uh, clearing up any kind of misconceptions that may be out there about vaccines in general. Sure. Yeah. So here's the deal. After clean water um, and and the the work that went into cleaning public water systems, really the next most uh, amazing public health feat was the creation of vaccines to prevent vaccine preventable disease. Prior to vaccines, you know, worldwide, we would have millions of kids, including in the U.S., um, dying of infectious disease, whether it was polio or whether it was diphtheria or whether pertussis or meningitis, I mean, all these diseases. And um, as vaccines started coming out to protect against all these diseases, we saw a dramatic increase in survival of kids remaining healthy all the way through adulthood when a lot of these kids, you know, yes, you could survive maybe a disease like measles or mumps or rubella, but some kids, a lot of kids didn't or went on to have permanent disabilities. Even chickenpox, um, you know, Almost all kids uh, my age had chickenpox. I actually didn't. I was one of the first recipients of the adult chickenpox vaccine. But the point being that all these diseases that we have vaccines for caused horrific illnesses and deaths in kids. And people think, oh, it's better to get the natural infection and survive it than to get these vaccines. That's 100% not true. And any of the vaccines that we have out now, while nothing is risk-free, and that means Tylenol, that means aspirin, that means bananas, that means water. Everything can have a level of toxicity depending on who's receiving it and what dose and how they get it. So yes, vaccines can have risks just like Tylenol or aspirin, but they're incredibly safe and very effective. Most vaccines are incredibly highly effective. I'd say they're probably the most variably effective vaccine we have out there is the flu vaccine. And even that one, while it's less effective than most of the vaccines we have, and it depends on the year. Some years are better than others. We also know it has amazingly protective effects, even on years where it isn't a great match. And even if you still get flu having gotten the flu vaccine, we now know that it reduces the chance of that flu infection resulting in a hospitalization, an ICU admission, or even death. So I do want to point out that there's a lot of misinformation out there. And for anybody listening to this podcast, 
What I would say is that a lot of people hear misinformation on social media. The sources aren't always clear. They come in oftentimes saying, oh, we're, we're worried about safety or, or, or the um, uh, impact of vaccines. But what they don't tell you is a lot of people that are pulling the strings behind these campaigns or funding them is that when they push this agenda of being anti-vaccine, that it's oftentimes got profit tied to it. So there's money to be made. Sometimes it's political gain or sometimes it's power and even hostile foreign nations. We have good data on this, push this anti-vaccine narrative to cause distrust in our institutions. But imagine, you know, John, if you had had the meningitis vaccine. And when I talked to Francesca and Blake, the same thing, right? They said, you know, I think Francesca was like a month away from getting her first meningitis vaccine when she got the disease. So who wouldn't do anything to protect their kids with a vaccine rather than get these diseases? So, you know, I understand that um, because of the disinformation out there, there's a lot of questions and having questions does not make you anti-vaccine. It makes you a good parent. And if you want your questions answered, absolutely, you should have a healthcare provider take time and answer those questions. But for the people that are pushing absolute nonsense, and I mean, there is some crazy stuff out there, not just vaccines, but conspiracies that the earth is flat or we never landed on the moon or you name it. All I can say is, what does the science say? And as a physician, I took an oath to do no harm. And I took an oath to, you know, really serve families. And that's why I went into pediatrics. So um, my kids are all vaccinated against all the diseases, including meningitis and all, all of all three of mine got both meningitis vaccines. They got the HPV vaccine. They got the flu vaccine. I mean, they got all the vaccines that they could get. And, and I'm vaccinated too. And like I said, I even, even entered into a vaccine study when I was in medical school. My infectious disease professor said, go down to room six and check that kid out with chickenpox. And I looked at him and I said, uh, I, I haven't had chickenpox. He went, what? I said, I haven't had. He goes, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I have my blood tested. I don't have any antibodies. And he, he took out a piece of paper and a pen. He goes, hey, they're currently doing a study on the first uh, vaccine against chickenpox. So this is before we had a, a vaccine for chickenpox. This would have been, uh, I think it would have been early, early 90s. I think early 90s, maybe 91, something like that. And uh, I went down and they... Uh, they interviewed me at the study. They drew my blood. They said, yep, you don't have any antibodies and told me about the study and I entered it. And uh, so I'm also a vaccine study uh, can, uh, uh, patient who went through clinical trials, got my blood drawn a bunch, got uh, the vaccine as a, as a, as a patient going through testing and um, continue to get testing for multiple years after that. So, yeah. When did the meningitis vaccines become widely available? Yeah. So the quadrivalent, remember the ones that covers type A, C, W, and Y, the first vaccine in the U.S. that came out for the quadrivalent meningitis vaccine came out around 2005. And then the meningitis B, uh, B as in boy vaccine, that came out around 2015, so about 10 years later. And um, there's different companies that make it, so I don't usually for these purposes, mention one particular vaccine over the other. If they're safe and approved and uh, by the FDA and given in offices, I don't care what company makes it as long as it can be used. 
So those are relatively new. And for me, wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't have helped me in 1998. Correct. Yeah, right. Because this is before. And like I said, I remember, I think it was Francesca who, I think hers was like just like a, a month or two later is when she, she recalled them. Uh, she would have been able to get her dose. She and Blake both uh, have pretty compelling stories. And uh, I was honored to be able to uh, do work with them on behalf of the National Meningitis Association. And regarding the National Meningitis Association, how do you think education has changed with meningitis in the, over the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah, I'll tell you what I think is going on. There's a couple things. One, um, it used to be, I think, that when you're a healthcare provider, there weren't like all that many vaccines when I started. And, in, and before I started, there were even fewer. But if your healthcare provided it, I think most people just went ahead and accepted them. Um, as newer vaccines are coming out and with the advent of social media, particularly it's huge popularity over the last 10 to 15 years, there's so much different amounts of information out there and really hard to sort through what is what. And so the really factual sites like the CDC and the NIH, um, and, uh, even a medical professional organization, sometimes it's hard to, hard to even sort through that. I think in the last five, six, seven years, they've improved the information they provide. So they're not talking too scientifically and making sense of the information. But what's happened with social media is you get um, both good information, but oftentimes a ton of bad information. And it's hard for somebody to sort through that. And where the trouble begins is when misinformation comes out, we as humans are hardwired for detecting threats and risks. And if you think about it, clickbait, right? The stuff you tend to click on is really sensational and oftentimes scary, whether it's about, you know, shark attacks or Loch Ness monster or alien abductions, right? They can be really fantastical, almost disbelievable right after the titles read, but you still have a tendency to want to click on it because we're hardwired to do that. And so when you see information like, oh, these vaccines sterilize people or government and doctor or pharma, they're all in bed with each other and making money off of harming people, right? Um, it sounds crazy, but you, you, a lot of people will click on those stories. And um, again, as I said, there are real ulterior motives for people that push this disinformation um, out there. But how do you combat that? Well, you combat that with people who have real stories of what the diseases can do. And that's because these diseases harm and kill people. And before we had vaccines, they devastated multiple families each year, which doesn't happen now because the vaccines are there. So the National Meningitis Association, just like groups like Families Fighting Flu, go out there and help real people tell real stories of survival from these diseases, or sadly, people they lost to these diseases. And that becomes a real awakening when you see a real person with a story that's their own or their families telling you just how bad these diseases can be. And that is a pretty potent um, antidote to false and, and, and you know, uh, disinformation. And so that's why I think groups like National Meningitis Association and other groups that are out there trying to tell people what can really happen really has a potent effect. Um, it doesn't take away from the fact that healthcare providers and doctors need to be better communicators. 
a lot of times we interrupt our families and our patients. Um, we oftentimes are rushed to get in and out of the room. And so don't give adequate time, I think, to families that have questions. And honestly, I believe that visits and the constraints put on healthcare providers are so significant that we can't spend the time we want to, which is why I'm a huge proponent of healthcare providers getting out on social media platforms to be able to engage their families in other ways, which is why our practice has a Facebook page and an Instagram page and TikTok, and we have a YouTube and a Vimeo channel and we podcast because then we can reach families 365 days, even uh, seven days a week and 24 hours a day, depending on when they're up and looking for information. And in general, if somebody feels like they trust their healthcare provider speaking to you as a as the provider, uh, should I feel like I can't ask these questions or like you are in a rush to, to do whatever you need to be doing? I mean, these are discussions that we should be having. And as, as the patient and as the parent, we need to have these discussions with the providers. Is that right? A hundred percent, yes. And if your healthcare provider isn't taking time to talk to you, I think you give them one more chance by saying, hey, I have some questions. Um, can we talk about these? And they have a chance to either take some extra time and discuss it then or say, no, I really have to get out to the next patient, but let's email or find another way or let's talk via phone and set up a call, which I think is totally fine, right? Some days may be really crazy or somebody might be really sick in the next room and they may really have strong time constraints. There's nothing wrong with that if they're willing to say, let's talk tonight or talk tomorrow or at the end of this week. But if they don't give you an option to talk to them, I think it's completely reasonable to go and look for another healthcare provider who will answer your questions. I mean, that's, I want a healthcare provider that's going to answer my questions. But again, what we do, and I mean, we do Facebook Live every, uh, every Friday. I do TikTok Live every Monday night. Um, we try and make a bunch of venues and through our Facebook page, we've had thousands and thousands. I think we're closing in on 10,000 questions over the last several years where we take time to answer them there. So we try and meet people where they're at because we recognize the 15 minutes in the exam room or 20 minutes or sometimes even longer might not be convenient for the patient. Maybe they have to go pick up another kid from childcare or maybe they have something they have to run to and just wanna get the visit done and get immunizations or whatever the issue is they need to have addressed that day. So <clears throat> it's not just the, the healthcare provider that may be in a hurry that day, it could be the family member. So I think in 2020, we have lots of different ways to take time to talk to one another, but we do have to take time to talk to one another. And by the way, for families that have a lot of questions or even fear of particular treatments, including vaccines, I don't view that as, as wrong. I view that as somebody that wants what's best for their kid and needs to have time to answer those questions. Now, um, the, how you meet the, those questions and how you spend that time can vary, as I just described. But there's nothing wrong with having questions. The real issue I have, and I, I, you and I talked a bit before we started this, was, you know, in 2017, in the fall, we posted a video about the HPV vaccine. And that vaccine is an amazingly effective and safe vaccine. But it, for whatever reason, flu and HPV seem to really trigger um, people that have strong anti-vaccine uh, beliefs. And rather than when we, so we posted a video saying, hey, did you know the HPV is truly cancer prevention? And it, it was a really popular video. It had 15,000 views. People were calling and making their appointments. And then three weeks after we posted it, 
the anti-vaccine community, these are not people with questions, these are people that were hell-bent on attacking us, found the video and launched a global coordinated anti-vaccine social media attack on us. Over 800 accounts on Facebook posting over 10,000 times, simultaneously attacking our ratings and reviews on Facebook, Yelp, and Google from all over the world. So it was Australia, New Zealand, it was California, it was Czechoslovakia, it was Ireland, it was Italy, it was all over the world. And it wasn't, hey, we have questions about this vaccine. It was, you're baby killers, you're killing people. Um, didn't know us, weren't even from our community, but they now use the tactics of swarming and attacking. Um, and by the way, uh, they, they, again, oftentimes have very nefarious ulterior motives. So those are the people that I would say really cause real destructive um, discord. But people with general questions, absolutely not. And their questions should be answered. So speaking of social media, Dr. Willen, where's the best place to find you on the web? Sure. Uh, visiting our practice website, which is Kids Plus Pediatrics, and it's at www.kidspluspgh.com. That's K-I-D-S-P-L-U-S-P-G-H, which is an abbreviation for Pittsburgh.com. So www.kidspluspgh.com. Well, thanks a bunch, Dr. Willen. Um, appreciate everything you're doing, especially uh, you. as it pertains to the meningitis community. And thanks for joining me. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity, and I think what you're doing is great to educate your listeners. So thanks for the opportunity to speak. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe. And for a complete transcript of this episode, connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.